Well, welcome, welcome you. Um, in the name of the Lord, glad you're here. Hope you're awake. Um, for those that are just joining us in this 915 class, um, we started last week a series called Honest Questions. Last year, uh, last summer, last fall, we just kept peppering our church with a little survey. It said, tell us what questions you have. Not stump the professor. Just theory, but what are things you wrestle with or you have loved ones that, um, you know, you're really struggling with a particular dynamic of the Christian life or theology or biblical interpretation or application or something like that. And we got a bunch of good questions. We tried to compile them thematically. Uh, we're not going to speak directly to every single question, but I think categorically we're speaking to most, if not all of them. But this was a repeated question, and I'll just give it to you for today, and then I'll open us in prayer. Uh, this is our little guide. If you want one of these, I think you can find them on the welcome table out in the main hallway. But it looks like this, which I know you can't see. Today is condemnation of the ignorant in quotes and the justice of God. To put that in your heart before I lead us in prayer, <clears throat> the question is, in my words, somebody never hears about Jesus? Never hear the gospel? Born, live, whole life long, die? Where does that person spend eternity? And if God condemns that person, is he just? The condemnation of the ignorant, ignorant not in a derogatory sense, in the honest meaning of that word, that just means you don't know something. We're all ignorant of a lot of things. What if somebody's ignorant, unaware, has no knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What does God do with such a person when they die? That's today's question. Many of you have thought about this. You're already locked and loaded. You could give a very biblical summation right off the cuff. But I pray that we'll wrestle through it, even if we think we're familiar with it. And if you're brand new to this question, this theological, biblical question and what Scripture has to say, uh, our prayer is that you do not feel Bible-thumped, but that you feel very loved and helped. So let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, we ask that we would submit to your thoughts, your ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Your ways are higher than the, our ways. So so far as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts and ways above ours. You're beyond us. And at the same time, though transcendent, you have intruded into our little temporal lodging place that you created, planet earth, and you have spoken you have revealed yourself in ways that are intelligible to finite creatures like us. We confess we have lots of questions and sometimes our questions we regret, we lament, we repent. 
that sometimes our questions turn not into inquiry, but accusation and blaming you and trying to cast shadows on your goodness and your holiness, your righteousness. And Lord, we're sorry for that. So we know you're not scared of our questions and you're okay with us wondering and asking and wrestling. And we thank you for how patient you are with us when you grow us and mature us. And we come to realize that something we thought was the case is actually not biblically true. We want to know you through your word. So give us minds to understand what you've revealed. Give us hearts to receive what you've said and not receive it begrudgingly, but in happy agreement that the judge of all the earth will do right. We pray this in your great name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so lots of territory to cover, and I hope to have some time at the end for good interaction, discussions, questions, further comments or additions. I'm under no delusion. I'm going to exhaust this topic. But these are the five things that I hope we cover. I'll go back to each one uh, once we touch, uh, touch them one at a time. So first, if we're going to ask about the justice of God in any way, shape, or form. Is God just? Today we're asking specifically in condemning anybody, particularly those who've never heard the gospel. Well, we've got to start with the foundation question. Just who is he? What is he like? Uh, is he just? And so just a few thoughts on this. This, one, this uh, citation comes from Wayne Grudem, Systematic Theology. It's just... A, a big book that organizes the topics of the Bible and as many or all the verses that the author could find that speak to that topic. So concerning the justice of God, uh, Dr. Wayne Grudem says, does the short time of punishment envision, envisaged by the annihilationist, it should say pay, actually pay for all the unbelievers' sin and satisfy God's justice. I'm going to go back and explain these words. Try my best. If it does not, then God's justice has not been satisfied and the unbeliever should not be annihilated. But if it does, then the unbeliever should be allowed to go to heaven and he or she should not be annihilated. In either case, annihilationism is not necessary or right. And I just start there by... Because on, let's see, April the 7th, Lord willing, the question we received uh, that we'll cover that day is future judgment, annihilation, or eternal hell? That's April the 7th. So I'm not trying to answer that question today, but it's so related that I wanted to start with, with God's justice. So let me go back and put my cursor on some of these words. This is the short time of punishment, and short time, you know, even if we count 10 million years of Dante's Inferno, or some purgatorial idea that doesn't last forever, 10 million years would be a short time compared to eternity. So does the short time of punishment seen by those who think hell is not forever, annihilationists, 
Actually, it should say pay, I mistyped, for all the unbeliever's sin. And does people being annihilated satisfy God's justice? If no, then God can't annihilate them. If yes, they should all go to heaven. So this, this citation, I think, is biblically faithful and undermines the notion that our eternal existence is not forever. Everyone will live forever. Everyone. The only question is where. And so we'll talk more about the doctrine of eternal punishment on April 7th, Lord willing. But the, the reason eternity is eternal is because God is eternal. He therefore gives eternal life or eternal death. One source said, worst of all, annihilationism makes the cross of Christ entirely unnecessary, portraying God as a cosmic fool, that he would send his son to be tortured for something that we could have eventually paid for over some period of suffering in hell ourselves. Second, the glory of God. Evil that remains, Grudem writes, unpunished, evil that remains unpunished, does detract from God's glory in the universe. When God punishes evil and triumphs over it, the glory of his justice, righteousness, and power to triumph over all opposition will be seen. He goes on to write, the depth of the riches of God's mercy will also then be revealed, for all redeemed sinners will recognize that they too deserve such punishment from God and have avoided it only by God's grace through Jesus Christ. So it is to his justice that eternity is eternal. It is to his glory that all who flee to him through his grace through Jesus Christ are redeemed. Romans 9, 22-24 reads, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Romans 9, 22 to 24 is answering the question, why doesn't he already send those who will be condemned to hell? Why does he let them live here at all? And the answer that Romans 9, 22 to 24 gives is so that those he saves, vessels of mercy, will know the riches of his glory that we should have been among them. There's no reason in ourselves that we also should not be condemned. So the glory of God and the justice of God are foundations for the question we're asking. Deuteronomy 32, 49 to 52 reads, uh, God, God says to Moses, go up to Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I'm giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die on this mountain where you ascend. Be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people because you broke the faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not treat me as holy 
in the midst of the sons of Israel, for you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I'm giving to the sons of Israel. So you can see, here's just one of many, many examples that God puts his character primary in his dealings with people. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11, speaking of God's character, this could not be more clear. This was a, uh, for whatever it's worth to you, <laughs> this was a every day, over three month, extended period of meditation for me when I was a freshman in college. I was like, I want to know that God. So every day, I had my quiet time in these verses for about three months. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. For my praise, I restrain it for you. In order not to cut you off, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another? God centers his own character in all of his actions. And this verse, among many other things, this passage, should cause us to say, well, then please do everything for your glory. Whatever will glorify you, do that. Because it's for your glory that you delay your wrath to me. That's what that verse teaches. <laughs> so, by all means, glorify your name, O God. All right, so the character of God. Now we're going to try to tie it to the condemnation of sinners. Uh, you all know the verse that precedes these two verses. Somebody quote the verse that precedes these two. Loud and clear. For God so loved, let's do it together, the world that he gave, your own translation, go for it. For God so loved the world that... You know the next two sentences. It's these. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The judge is God, and God is exercising his justice, just hinted at briefly, and the just judge says, no belief in my Son equals already judged. John 3, 17 and 18. It's a perfect passive indicative. Has been judged already. Romans 1, 18 to 20 speaks more directly to the question of today. Not just condemnation, but condemnation of the ignorant. Those who've never heard. So let's just imagine the scenario that many of you have thought through. Some of you may not have, so let's try together to think together for a little while. The man, the proverbial man on the island, right? The person who's born in some remote village or tribe somewhere off the coast of some continent. He, he, he's born into a people that have never heard the gospel. Uh, he lives a long life into maturity and old age. And he dies and nobody ever takes him the gospel. That man is, in this sense, ignorant just doesn't know, hasn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me be clear, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for the salvation of sinners. He died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day according to the scriptures. 
ascended to heaven, seated at the Father's right hand. He's coming again to judge the living and the dead. Those who put their hope in him will be saved. That's the gospel. That man, proverbial man on the island, never heard that message. What does the Bible say about him? This is one thing it says. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. No excuse. That man, maybe you don't like it. Maybe you disagree with it. But according to God, that man on that island has no excuse. Because what is evident, what is known about God is evident within him because God made it evident to them. We've got to specify this. So let's do some hard work of specificity. Jab Packer said, it's really a mercy to mankind that God in Scripture is so explicit about hell. Derek Thomas writes, low views of sin lead to questioning the appropriateness of such a drastic punishment as hell. Good people, Thomas writes, are sinners, and he gets that from Romans 3. So as we keep thinking about that man having no excuse, about to head right to condemnation, what is the condemnation ahead for that or any unbeliever, John 3, who does not believe in the Son, has been condemned already? Condemned to what? Wayne Grudem says hell is a place of eternal, conscious punishment for the wicked. Matthew 25, Jesus totally agrees. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, Jesus says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Those have to be literary parallels. If life is forever, then punishment is forever. Revelation 4 the Lord speaks of people being tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. So when we talk about the character of God and the condemnation of sinners, it, it, it leads us to wrestle with what about that man on that island? What about those people who never hear the gospel? In making it less proverbial and hypothetical, I don't know. I'm trying to do that about every second. Every single second of every single day, 365 days a year, a person who's never heard the gospel dies. 
There are two billion people alive today who've never heard the gospel. What about them? They live in a place that's latitude, longitude, 1040, the 1040 window. It's South Asia, Middle East, North Africa. There are other places outside of that, remote tribes in South America and Africa. What about those people? What about my neighbor, Ajala, 15 years ago, who doesn't live in Memphis anymore, who said to me as I was sharing the gospel with him, he said, and I quote, you mean alive, alive? When I mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, I said, have you ever heard that before? He's like, never. According to Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research, 45% of Americans think that there are, quote, many ways to get to heaven. And 71% of Americans agree that an individual must contribute to his or her own effort for personal salvation. That's absolutely antithetical to everything the Bible teaches. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So what about, what about those two billion? If they don't come through the Son, the Son says they don't come at all. Jason Allen, uh, president of Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, said, by exclusivity, we mean that only those who personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly confess Jesus as Lord can possess eternal life. Let me double-click on each one of those words, and then I want to go back to Romans 1. They are without excuse because the knowledge of God has been made evident within them and to them. All right, let's, let's click on personally, consciously, explicitly, and singularly possessing faith in Christ. Personally. Dr. Allen writes, salvation comes to us individually when one follows Christ. No one gains eternal life because of someone else's faith or by his or her affiliation with a Christian family or church ethnic or national group. Each sinner individually must repent of his or her sins and believe the gospel personally, consciously. To inherit the kingdom, Dr. Allen Wright writes, one must do more than reflect the ethic of Christ. Not just act like Jesus, be nice to people. One must consciously embrace him knowingly and intentionally following Jesus. There are no anonymous Christians regardless of Carl Rayner's assertion otherwise. Authentic believers know whom they are following. So nobody's like maybe a Christian. They know consciously they are following Jesus of Nazareth as their Savior. Explicitly, one's faith must be placed in God's Son, Dr. Allen writes, Jesus Christ, not generically in God. As Peter declares in Acts 4.12, 
There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved. Name of Jesus explicitly. So when you talk to the many Memphians who've been baptized two, three, or four times and are members of four or five churches all at the same time, that's, that's declining in our culture, but it was very much part of our culture for the last few generations. And they all believe in God. Just dig a little deeper. Which God are you talking about? Explicitly, Jesus Christ is Lord. Singular, exclusive, exclusively. And then finally, singular faith. Dr. Allen, faith in Jesus alone saves, and saving faith must be placed in him alone. The singularity of Christ as one's object of faith is especially important on the mission field, I would say here too, but Dr. Allen writes, where missionaries encounter religions, such as Hinduism, where they're happy to add Jesus to their pantheon of gods. We do not add Jesus to our portfolio of faith objects. Christianity is not both and, is not a both-and proposition, it is an either-or. You have Christ alone, or not Christ at all. Personal, conscious, explicit, and singular. All right, so now we're back to Romans 1. The exclusivity of Christ. Yes, it's a very, very hard pill to swallow. And not just like the doctor, I promise you it'll be good for you. You will believe it's good for you. If you see... The radical beauty of Christ. Best way I know how to put it. In what I'm about to say. General revelation. That is, God created the stars, the moon, sun, the planet, all it contains, you. That's general revelation. God has generally revealed himself. Romans 1 says anybody can... I'm paraphrasing, walk outside and say, wow, this didn't just happen by accident. You've never found an Apple Watch laying in the forest floor that just so happened to assemble itself. Clearly, somebody designed all this. Romans 1 says, lost people suppress that knowledge. It's not that they don't have it, they push it down in unrighteousness. The atheist disagrees with his own self, saying there is no God. Roman, uh, Psalm 14 says he's a fool. He, 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 speaks the spe- he speaks the speech of a fool, saying in his heart there is no God. General revelation, this is my point in saying all that, is sufficient for the knowledge of God, but is sufficient only for condemnation. It doesn't tell you how to know him. It doesn't tell you how to relate to him. It just tells you there is a God, you are not him. General revelation is sufficient for condemnation. Special revelation is sufficient for salvation. That's why I have a Bible and a cross. General revelation is creation. Special revelation is God's word written and God's word incarnate, his son. You must have the revelation of God in His Word and the revelation of God in His Son. 
according to his word. Not a Jesus of your imagination, the Jesus revealed in the pages of the Bible that walked the planet in first century uh, Middle East for about 33 and a half years. That Jesus revealed in this book, his life, his labors, his accomplishments on the cross, that Jesus alone is sufficient for salvation. So what we've just said, I have said, is that proverbial man on the island and those two billion people that have died every second that I've been talking, I believe the Bible teaches unequivocally, clearly, unapologetically. They perish eternally into a Christless hell. That's why Jesus would say things like this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Saying, you need to repent. There's another layer to this passage that is, God is clearly not trying to get all the people on planet Earth saved. Otherwise, Jesus would have gone to the place where the people would have repented instead of the place where they didn't. They actually both didn't repent. Tyre and Sidon didn't repent. Bethsaida and Chorazin didn't repent. Clearly, his uppermost goal is not every single person repenting. It's, a, it's, it's just a sobering truth, which leads us to the cost of saving any. <clears throat> I want to read just uh, uh, almost out of time. <laughs> I do want to leave a minute for you guys to interact, so... This book, Christ Crucified, will light your soul on fire. Uh, Donald McLeod, but he says concerning the cross, now comes a moment of well-nigh unsustainable awfulness. Abba is out of reach, not listening. The intimacy is broken, an intimacy that had never been broken before. It was a breach for which nothing could have prepared Jesus like Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, Genesis 22, father and son had gone up to Calvary together. And throughout his life, Jesus had been assured that he was not alone. The father was with him. Even at the cross, his father, like his mother, had been there. But now at the ninth hour, Abba was not there. Jesus can only cry out, Eloi, God. God was certainly there, but not as Abba. There is now no sense of his own divine sonship, no sense of God's love, no sense of his father's approval. God is not hearing him. He cries, but there is no answer. And God even seems to mock his trust, Psalm 22.8. Trouble is near, but there's no one to help, Psalm 22.11. There is no comfortable scripture to fill his mind, no assurance of ultimate victory, nor any vision of a redeemed multitude too great to count. At every other time of crisis, Abba had spoken great words of encouragement. This is my son, with whom I am well pleased, whom I love. Mark 1, Mark 9. Oh, how he needed these words now, but no such words came. He only hears the derision of the spectators, the curses of the soldiers, and the whispers of the prince of darkness. He is on his own. Yet somehow, there's no despair. Even at his lowest point, in the black hole of dereliction, faith and hope still breathe, as they must, for unbelief and despair are sin, and would have rendered the sacrifice of Jesus void. 
Faith must walk where there is no light, Isaiah 50.10. Even when Jesus cannot say Abba, he can say Eloi, my God. The God he loves and serves and still somehow trusts. Maybe this is what he dreaded as he trembled in Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood, that his mind would break in an unbearable anxiety of separation when he realized that Abba was out of sight, out of hearing. But in the end, though hope may not burn, it flickers even in the darkness. The cost of saving any is more extreme than any man can put into words that God would put forward his own son, Romans 3, as a demonstration of his righteousness through the blood of Christ is the cost God paid to satisfy his justice to become our friend. And the real question at the heart of the heart of the heart is not why do the ignorant go to hell, but why do any, 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 any go to heaven? Because I assure you, you don't want God to be fair with you. Fair with us would be everyone perish. But God in His mercy made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He took our sin. He took our punishment. This is the cost that God was willing to pay and indeed did pay so that we might be reconciled to him. There was no obligation for God to do that. That's love. That's love for you, love for me. And if he saves any, even one, at such a cost, who can blame him for not doing enough? He became a curse for us, Galatians 3 says. That's all the Old Testament curses applied to Jesus. And so, I'm going to skip some slides so I can go to Dr. R.C. Sproul helping us, and then we'll have about, I'm going to say, three to five minutes for interaction. I apologize again for not saving more time, but, but this is a good one. Uh, and I think it orients our heart. Here's two minutes of R.C. Sproul. If God is slow to anger and patient, excuse me, since God is slow to anger, <laughs> We're always learning. <laughs> Since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? Time out. <laughs> Didn't we just have that question a second ago? We did. Yeah, it's a little, I think a little, we little did. nuance. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe. This creature from the dirt <laughs> defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God had said, the day that you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, Thanatos, that day, he lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. 
and the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? I'm serious. I mean, this is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, the question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Okay, so a few minutes for interactions, questions. Uh, this is a deep end of the swimming pool to wrestle through. Uh, got a ton more notes that we didn't even get to, so I'm sure you've got thoughts and questions that you could easily add or clarify things I've said. Anybody have uh, any interaction you would like to offer? Yes, ma'am. Here, come, come meet me. This is so everybody can hear. I'm kind of just mulling over everything as you're talking and thinking, number one, I love how Scripture backs up Scripture, and we see, I mean, so many verses were coming to mind, but I agree with you. The Scripture's been clear, um, and we can have no doubt that that man on the island is without excuse, and I just think to question it makes me beg the question, then why the Great Commission? If that man can be saved by any other way other than hearing the gospel, then why does God, why did Jesus give us the Great Commission? Why do we need to risk our lives to go out and share the gospel? Because that missionary truly believes the scripture deep down that says, if we don't do this, these people will die in their sin. Fantastic. That, that's literally the slide I had, one of the many I skipped. So, yeah, great point. Um, right there. Oh. Uh, yes, ma'am. Catherine, meet me. Um, this may be a different hard question. Um, how, if at all, does this apply to unborn children and infants? Yeah, great question. Um, that's that's a, a, another series of grow lessons. It's it, it certainly at least one full one, but I'll give you my conclusion on that. I believe somehow in the mercy of Christ and the cross, not doing an end around Jesus, Jesus made accommodation for those who die in infancy and as our elder affirmation of faith are mentally incapacitated, those who grow up and are mentally incapacitated such that they cannot express their saving faith. I believe infants are Redeemed, Jesus said, out of the mouths of babes, here comes predestination, God has prepared praise for himself. And I think if you worship God apart from Jesus, you go to hell. If you praise him and he likes it, you have to go through Jesus. So I think babies somehow do that, that die in infancy. Um, I'm going to close this with this. It's related to Mackenzie and Catherine's comments. If people go to heaven without hearing about Jesus, the best favor we could do for the whole world is burn every Bible, close every church, and quit talking about Jesus, and everybody goes to heaven. That's exactly the opposite of what Jesus said, to Mackenzie's point. And um, what I said to Catherine's point could give a very unbiblical, 
very wicked rationale for abortifacients and abortion and everything else, which is also obviously antithetical to Scripture. I love you all so much. This is very deep, and uh, we're under no delusion that we're exhausting these answers, but we're going to try to speak uh, these questions, but try to speak as directly to them as we can time we have. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, cause our hearts to agree with your revelation of yourself and, uh, as we've just touched on briefly, to be obedient to the commission of our king to go make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe everything he's commanded. Use this church to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not right that there are so many who have yet to hear. Use us to be part of what you do to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' mighty name.